Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Health Tech Podcast. My name is James, one of the founders of HS, and with me this week I have Emil Hewitch, who is the CEO and co-founder of BIOS, which was formerly Cambridge Bio Augmentation Systems. So I have just finished speaking to Emil and we had an awesome chat. And I just want to kind of dive in and tell you guys what this is all about so that you're definitely fully engaged when you listen. So Emil's a really fascinating guy. He's got a PhD in uh, computational neuroscience and machine learning from Cambridge, and he's been using artificial intelligence to essentially interpret neural data. Now, he describes the company as a full stack neural interface company. And of what they do, he basically says that they're developing hardware and software connections between the nervous system and computers so what they are doing is they're reading data produced by the brain in certain situations be that um, responses to, to natural stimuli or medications and they're plotting what the brain does now obviously with that information they can then reverse engineer and start to hack the brain and actually produce the same effects that drugs might have straight to the brain so actually alleviating the need for drugs in the future now that's obviously a big vision and something that we do address in the podcast but it's really important that you guys know that's coming so that you can really listen to how Emil does that and the way he thinks and the way he goes about things I actually knew Cambridge Bar Organisation Systems when they were known as that a couple of years ago when they were part of one of my previous accelerators and they were a fascinating company to work with simply because they were thinking so futuristically and one of the things that really defines them is their ambition another thing that we talk about on the podcast in our line of work and the investor side of the table we see so many pitch decks and we see so many ideas that solve a really local problem and that's because of people's passion in, in an area that's very big to them but is in fact small in the grand scheme of things but even in what I've explained there about what Emil's trying to do at BIOS, they're essentially hacking the brain to remove the need for drugs in the future. It's a huge, enormous vision and something which has allowed so many important people to get behind them. So Emil, he's been working in startups from the age of like 17. He's, he's had engineering roles, he's had leadership roles in loads of different industries. He's one of the Forbes 30 under 30 people. And when you consider a future of BIOS potentially hacking the brain, potentially creating robotic arms that sync naturally with the human nervous system and the spine so that they sense and they can move, you can see why these guys are getting a lot of accolades. So as always, you can get in touch with us via Twitter at HSVenture, leave us some feedback, suggest us a guest, tell us what you like, tell us what you want to hear more of. You can get in touch via Instagram at hs.ventures or on LinkedIn at hs. And you can get in touch with me on Twitter at James Someru, LinkedIn at James Someru, and on Instagram too at j underscore soms, which is S-O-M-S. We had our 60th country listen to us last week. So if you are the people listening in Albania, our latest country, then by all means, get in touch and let us know what you think. 
And finally, if you're interested in hearing if the NHS could in fact sell its enormous data sets for $12 billion, then read up on my latest article for Forbes, which you can find on my Twitter and LinkedIn accounts. So that's it from me and my announcements this week. So guys, enjoy the podcast and let us know what you think. So Emil, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Uh, thanks, James. Yeah, I'm doing great. How are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, where are you speaking to us from today, Emil? I'm speaking to you from uh, our offices at BIOS, which are based in Cambridge. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Cool. So, Emil, obviously we've had a quick call before, so I know I'm a bit about your background and stuff. So for the benefit of our listeners, though, why don't you tell us your story? Yeah, so um, when I was 17, so about 14 years ago, I moved to Cambridge uh, to work for a, a medical device startup that was just getting going. And uh, after a couple of years with them and, and, and putting a, a sort of microchip that measured blood um, into, into a clinic, I, I started undergraduate at Cambridge to study engineering and I met my co-founder, Ollie. So I had the sort of inspirational first career without any real training. And Ollie and myself both then went on to study various forms of the intersection between sort of engineering and biology. So Ollie was a biomedical engineer. I ended up um, after quite a few years of you know, masters and PhDs doing computational neuroscience and some machine learning. And um, so yeah, the, the entire time that we were sort of working together, we were lab partners, we built solar cars together. Ollie was always telling me about this story when he was about 12 years old where he hurt, hurt, hurt his thumb and, and sort of had this belief as an engineer that he should be able to sort of rebuild, uh, rebuild his thumb rather than just wait for it to heal. And, you know, together we sort of realized that the amazing thing about some of the things we were working on, so the neural stuff I was looking at, the bioengineering that Ollie was looking at, was that we were getting to this tipping point where we could start to, um, you know, build an, um, tools to interact with things like our nervous system and, and really remove pain and add function back again. And we thought that's actually quite a fun business to try and start. And so towards the end of our respective PhDs, so about five years ago, we started trying to start the company that it is today, which is BIOS. Wow. I just want to touch on your background then, because I know on our previous call, you mentioned a few like really good things about your background. And I know that our listeners really like to hear about careers and how you eventually got into entrepreneurship and stuff. Sure. And you've kind of, I mean, you've worked at Siemens, you've worked at McLaren, you've obviously done the PhD, you've been involved in different startups. I mean, what, tell me about your career kind of moving from working for people to, for then, to then obviously entrepreneurship. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, as I said, my very first job, uh, I actually heard someone speaking at a talk at a, near, the, near the sort of secondary school where I was at in Aberdeen about um, this high-tech sort of cool idea um, in about 2005. And um, at the time, I just thought, this is amazing. I've never seen a company that is really pushing sort of the edge of technology. And that happened to be a small startup. Um, I didn't know it was a startup at the time. And I just wrote to the guy who gave the speech and I said, look, I'd, lo I'd love to work for you. And really that I re the very start of my career was dominated by this sort of year, just over just under two years working for this very small company that was full of, full of people with PhDs and loads of, loads of um, training, but also loads of passion trying to um, get the company off the ground. And that company was eventually sort of floated on a, on a stock market and it you know, went really quite a long way. And so my, the first part of my career was actually a very confusing and unusual start where I didn't realize that a lot of what was in that first job was very unusual. So I was working directly with one of the founders of the business. We were meeting investors. We were going to meet, you know, big, big, big customers and then jumping back into a lab and solving hard problems with very smart people. 
and then so after that uh, when I started um, sort of trying to trying to pick a career where I myself could potentially be involved in this kind of business again because that's sort of my mission um, I, I first thought I needed a proper degree and was lucky enough to get a place to start studying engineering um, and I thought okay the first thing I noticed about those people is they had great qualifications and a lot of them would work for big fancy companies so um, I uh, first got sponsored by the healthcare division of Siemens during my during my engineering undergraduate and uh, that was a chance to work in one of the best and biggest um, uh, R&D groups um, in the UK we were working on MRI magnets and there um, it was really interesting to see what it's like to be among amazingly well-trained people but actually there was really that wasn't that same connection with the work we did so quite often you know head office was literally you know uh, thousands of miles away um, and um, that meant that often we had very little connection with what we were about to work on next so the problems were hard but then didn't have that same passion and energy um, and so then after that um, or actually while I was still being sponsored by them I managed to do some work for some financial institutions so I've heard that you know the city was the way the you know the thing that moved the world and I managed to work for a hedge fund that invested in technologies and help them do analysis of the future of technology so like renewable energy big healthcare systems and there I could see how in one meeting we could meet the boss of some of the biggest companies I've ever heard of and talk to them about the future of you know thousands of, or millions of products but again it felt divorced sort of from reality uh, you know we were just talking about it semi-academically um, you know really just providing money or support to kind of a very abstract plan didn't feel like the way that the world was changing um, what really inspired me was some of the leaders of these businesses were coming in explaining how they had these enormous ambitions or enormous problems and then and then sort of a group of people you know potentially this group I was working for or someone else would eventually give them the resources and they would succeed or fail based on them and their team so um, really this middle ground of my career I worked for a couple of big firms with big power and then and then luckily I kind of uh, I'd helped start a, um, a solar car group solar car racing team uh, with my idle time as an undergraduate and through that I'd got into involved in sort of you know advanced forms of motorsports so um, yeah, literally electric cars you build yourself that run on the sun that go hundreds of kilometers an hour and you, you ship them you ship them yourself and support them yourself in, in Australia and through that I built a lot of mentors up in the motorsport sector and McLaren had this sort of research position where you could work on machine learning to make cars go faster and there it had all of the good elements of you know we were directly owning our results it was it was going straight into the setup of cars for races I was working with machine learning and, and that was this was in sort of 2010 so really before it was widely known I was really fascinated by this capability so I was starting to see how I could be a technical specialist just like those I'd worked with uh, but in, in the end um, even though there was a lot of uh, speed and energy in the company amazingly smart people then it was just sort of driving stuff around in a circle so the sort of final vector that brought me back to um, then where I was doing today is is at the end of that I had the opportunity to go, to go into industry to work for some of these major engineering firms and some major sort of finance firms and uh, quite a very smart guy who ended up being my PhD supervisor gave me the chance to actually stick around and use machine learning to study the brain and um, I actually thought if this if there's one point um, that really gives you a gut check as to whether you're finished learning or not. So when you hand in your master's thesis, everyone's sort of wiping the sweat off their brows and going, that was tough. And I, I, I thought, actually, I quite fancy pushing myself one bit harder. I'd be really disappointed if that was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And um, again, as I said, a couple of friends of mine had the same sort of perspective and certainly Ollie, who I started the business with, we'd known each other for years. He'd gone off to sort of GE and done big engineering as well. And we both felt like there, was, there were harder problems that 
perhaps because we'd spent so much time looking at them, we would be best placed to solve. And then um, after what was nearly sort of three and a half, four years of, of PhD type research into neuroscience in particular, what I felt then was this real lack of, of, of some of the amazing capabilities that we were unlocking as neuroscientists and in particular computational neuroscientists being the lack of that being translated into anything that could help a real person. So there would be million dollar studies that um, you know, would achieve amazing results. And you know, each of us was one small part of, of delivering that. And um, that's the way that sort of research funding works. But the question we were asking is, you know, if this has happened, this result could have been done slightly less well five years ago. You know, why, why five years from now are we all expecting that nothing more than maybe two to three more people are getting this technology? So um, what, what, what I'd seen from the early career in the earliest companies I'd been in was that you can, if you really align smart people on a mission and also have some backing from, from, from investors, you can start to work on problems that really will take you know, quite a long time to solve, but that can make a sort of paradigm shift in, in healthcare in particular. And, um, and that, for me, that, that really hit mo most of the major forces that were driving me forwards. And the rest of my family are all directly employed in the NHS or, or have recently retired from being so. So it sort of was a chance also to, to start to be a bit more useful in the general family uh, perspective oh. as well which is fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. I didn't know that bit about your family in the NHS actually, but yeah, what a journey that is. What, what a, what a career. And you, it seems that you've got such a pedigree to, to become a founder there. I mean, you've pieced together what, and I think it's, it sounds quite intentional that you've pieced together so many parts of what's needed to be an excellent founder indeed what it is to be an excellent team of founders almost because you know you've got the startup experience you've got tech experience you've got the investment experience you've worked in corporates you've been a founder with your idle time i think you said great phrase you've worked in academia obviously and 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 done your your masters and your phd as i say it, it just it just seems a great pedigree and was your motivation going through that to eventually be a founder did you realize early on because it sounds like you got bitten by the boat by the bug early on when you worked in that first startup and you were having these big meetings with people that you didn't even know were big meetings at the time and you know seeing the progression and seeing the you know the um, the impact and stuff quite quickly yeah was it did you always have an eye on being a founder at the end of that or were you just sort of piecing it together and following your nose i think i think yeah the the Sort of less expected answer is the true one. So, so I, you know, it really wasn't my aim. Um, really, was to do with following my nose. And and if I'm honest, I, you know, when I when I was 17 years old, working in this, you know, it was back in 2005, 2006. There wasn't such a trend around working in a company that no one's heard of that pays you very badly. Yeah. I, it wasn't. There was not a culture about giving equity to any of the early employees. And I literally had no degree. I just, you know, I just left school with effectively the Scottish equivalent of A levels. So. My job was work, you know, some, at the hardest times, maybe 15 plus hours a day, sometimes 18, sometimes sleep in the office, um, get some stuff done and get it out um, because the whole company would not succeed if we didn't hit the targets. But then, um, I, you know, I thought I, 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 would, I didn't want a different job because the mission and the, and the thing we were working on was just so much more interesting than anything I'd worked on. But, but I, I hated the fact that I had mates who were, you know, all at Freshers Week just having fun or those who, you know, were doing more conventional gap years or traveling the world or, or at a minimum, you know, I was at some, in some science park in the middle of nowhere and the next youngest employee was 
27 and for me that was a decade away and I had almost nothing in common with with him and then the, the, the rest of them were sort of 30 plus and had kids I remember spending seven months trying to start a five-a-side football team because um, we were grew from about six to about 30 people and I managed to get three people to turn up and only after after one of them was the boss who, who said you know he felt quite sorry for me so the, early on that felt like a very hard job that didn't feel very fair um, and I really enjoyed the challenges, but it felt, you know, I actually had to take a weekend job in a Vodafone shop to be able to pay get enough money to afford to live in Cambridge because Cambridge is quite an um, quite a expensive city. And so I think the perspective I got after the first year of being in Cambridge in a startup in, in sort of 2006-ish was that, um, you know, the job that paid me the money was a job that I had really got no value from. I really didn't, I, I love the people I worked with in the, in the telephone shop, but we were done, we were just doing, you know, effectively um, something that I, I saw some of my colleagues could, you know, had, had been doing for sort of five years and could probably do for another five years. I didn't want that trajectory. So all it told me was that I really needed to pay attention to where I work. You know, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't one of the high flying bosses or scientists at my existing company. Um, I was just a very starry eyed apprentice. And then in, in the Vodafone shop, you know, I, I just didn't feel like, you know, getting hitting sales targets and selling contracts. I just like talking to people. And it was quite fun to meet people more close to my age by being in the shop at the weekends. So, so really that, that kind of following the nose effectively, just the, what all that meant was I ended up having quite a high standard for, for how I judged the environment I worked in. And then a lot of these very shiny firms that I ended up working for in the middle of the um, career were, I, I really appreciated the people and respected the people I worked with rather than the brand of the company. And you realize that after you get a degree, you're going to work in an office, there's going to be Excel and PowerPoint and the words sort of and word documents and these sort of things. But apart from that, it's really the people you're working with and the thing you're trying to do. So you, you lose a bit of that kind of naivety. Sorry, yeah, no, it's fine. I was just gonna say, I can really relate to that. I can really relate to the whole following your nose thing because I also get asked that question quite a lot. You know, did you piece together, you know, the bits of your career with the clinical and the policy and the innovation and this to eventually do what you're doing now? And yeah, as you say, the, the unexpected answers, the right one, which is no, I just followed what I liked doing, what I enjoyed. And yes, there's, there's some kind of thinking, as you've said, about piecing together what you think will be useful. And you've got this idea of, of the type of thing you want to do, but you haven't got a job title in mind. You haven't got a business in mind, particularly that you want to start. But what you're doing is you're piecing together the parts of that and you're, you're going to jobs that you think you will enjoy or you think you will learn something from or yeah. that will solve problems in your life, as you say, uh, you know, joining the Vodafone store just to, just to get the money to, to, because it does serve a purpose and it adds to your life in that way. And I'm yeah. sure you learned a bit of sales and stuff in there, which kind of hurt as a founder, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I can really relate to that journey. I think, I think one thing I'd add about, you know, cause your journey is particularly uh, uh, notable as well. I think that, that, that um, what you do what, what, for everyone, what you gain over time, if you really pay attention to it, it's just a better sense of your own um, values and then your own goals. You exactly. learn it from exposure. You can't, you can't read it in a book or even really sort of see it from, um, you know, blogs about what it's like to work somewhere it's you know put yourself to work and see what see what really resonates with you i completely agree so moving us on slightly then in the story so piece together all these different bits and now we're at the point where you're starting bios so talk to me about the early idea of bios and talk to me about how you started what the what the plan was at the very start i'm I'm sure that would have been wildly different to what it looks like now but yeah talk to me about the very early days of bios and and interacting with your co-founder and starting the company as such i think um so yeah 
when we when I think back to the early days of BIOS and actually a lot of our sort of advisors, uh, some of our investors now, and, and and definitely a lot of our employees comment quite notably that some of the very core of what we do at BIOS really hasn't changed, and that's part of the reason why they've people have stayed engaged with us and and have you know we, that we've gone very far together as a group, as a team, and you know as a, as a wider set of partners. So. Um, the thing that was really fascinating for us um, is to try and work on what we felt was like a, was a really hard problem rather than a, you know, a, a problem that another team would eventually solve within the sort of lifetime of a few years so that we could really start to, you know, despite the disadvantages we felt we might have, we could start to build a capability that then eventually would be meaningful for um, a wide range of people in, in the healthcare environment. And the hard problem we were really interested in was this concept of the neural interface. So, so you know, how do we build a kind of direct um, hardware and software connection to translate nerve signals into information and into action and, to, and back again? Um, so this can take, you know, this sort of, this goes all the way from the uh, sci-fi plugging my nerves and my neurons and my brain into some computer that talks to me and I talk back, but all the way back to every single person that we, uh, you know, look at designing a sort of even a prosthesis for, the big hard problem is how do you integrate all this fantastic technology like you know robotic limbs etc into what is basically bone soft tissue and and, and and nerves so the kind of core of the company and the core idea that Ollie and I were talking about extensively uh, in break times and etc um, in the research group was was just what is the hard problem to solve that 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 allows us to build a neural interface, so a high fidelity, stable connection between computers and machines and, and 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 biology in our body, that that could last a very long time and that people could basically benefit from, um, because we didn't want to start a company that would just build one fancy, um, you know, one fancy limb or one fancy kind of very neurally connected uh, vagus stimulator or similar, and then you know have that succeed or fail just based on the fact that we were, we were the lucky ones at the time, to um, Get the get the recipe right. We also felt like you know we were just too too sort of engineering nerdy to um, just build an app uh, first, you know, just to build a, a sort of a, a non-invasive or sort of health decisions type nudging application. Because you know we were we are the sort of if you think of the constituents that pull pull up the healthcare pull up healthcare every year, we're from the R and D labs that you know build the things like the robotic surgery surgery equipment and the MRI magnets. We're not the we're not the frontline clinicians, although we have great friends who are. We're not the patients who are going through it. We're the ones who can spend some time trying to bring some capability to help those people. Um, so the the crux of the idea was what's the best way to solve a neural connection uh, to a computer and what's the best way to make sure that our work has the longest, most uh, widely accessible and various legacy and the idea then crystallized into making um yeah simple open standard connection uh and your uh, sort of hardware and software that could be plugged into initially an amputee's limb but also then into the core of someone's autonomic nervous system um and um to, to, to architect it as a hardware problem first and then to start to generate the data that was really missing on the interaction between nerves and the body and um it seemed quite crazy, so we drew it up as a kind of diagram, saying this would, this could be like the USB port for your own your own body, and, and luckily some very very clever um, 
sort of industry execs in, in sort of biopharma and medical devices, some very, very uh, supportive and clever engineers, some very, very insightful clinicians who saw that this was a need that was really the underlying need, in, particularly in the amputee space, said, yes, this is the point. This is, you know, the moment, the moment a patient gets this, um, you know, has to, has to be given a prosthesis. We can't give them neural capability. This is directly linked to their quality of life. You know, this, 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 this would be an alternative way to solve it. And what really kind of solved it for us as a kind of, this is the right thing is, uh, you know, one of our friends, James, um, who we just kind of got to know just after his, um, uh, he had a very unfortunate incident where he fell under a, a DLR train and lost his right arm, uh, sorry, left arm and left leg you know, he was saying exactly the same things. I want to get this capability back. And the biggest thing for me is that while I can get a leg any day, anything I attach to my upper body, it's not, it's not me. It's not connected to me. I need, I want to have that connection. And so we decided at the core that we'd build this, um, we'd try and make a neural connection. And it took a long time after that, actually a couple of years to see a more broader trend for neural technology um, uh, coming into the psyche of sort of neural tech startups, but really this as a neural interface, it has intersections into advanced prostheses, all form, lots of forms of chronic healthcare, um, both for central nervous system and, and peripheral nervous system disorders and bioelectronics. And, and so we've started to see this big ecosystem of, of really um, great health advances of various scales start to need and want to utilize a neural interface. But we were just obsessed really, and frankly about the, um, achieving that connection to start to unlock some of the potential in the body mm. what i love about that story not only is it just a really cool field in the sense that you're literally just connecting robotic limbs to humans and you're addressing that connection element so that's cool we can all agree that's cool but it genuinely solves real problems as you've described for amputees and for people that have undergone you know horrendous injuries and things so you can gem genuinely see how it solves a problem but the thing i love most is your you and ollie your individual ambition there your ambition to just say you know what we're just going to go and attack the you know one of the biggest problems it's incredibly complicated we it could be a number of different ways to solve this but actually let's give that a go and coming from the investment side of the table here what what i would love to see more of is that ambition in founders you know there's so many you'll have seen this so often you know obviously we know each other from from my previous accelerator so yeah. you'll have seen this from from companies on there or other companies that have tried to get on there and and that exist in, in the space there's people are so passionate about solving problems that they encounter themselves, but by definition, they're often not the biggest problems. And so yeah. it's, it's actually quite rare to come across people like yourselves that have this incredibly huge ambition that you're going to, you're going to start connecting robotic limbs to human beings in a meaningful way that to the, to the point where I imagine that, that it's got sensory elements and motor elements and all the other different things. And so that level of ambition is so welcomed for, for, for people that see lots and lots and lots of this stuff like we do and i can really imagine how as you say these industry execs that have existed in the space will have really got on board with this because you know here's a guy that's worked across all these different things partnered up with ollie who's also done all these different things you're both doing phds in the space you're up to date with the research you know what's happened you've seen robocop and other things as to what the future <laughs> should look like and you know what these are people that are ambitious enough to go and build it. And even the way that you talk, I, I love the way that you speak about this with confidence and with, with that ambition and, and just a genuine right. belief that it, that it is possible. Even in, even when you're talking about the idea, I think, yeah, in, incredible. 
Thanks. I think um, just got a couple of comments. I think that, that first of all, you know, the reason that neural technology and the interface we're building really has um, you know, proven a, a, an okay thing for us to have been focused on is actually the scale, as you say, that scale of, of what, what, what it can do. And I think that the, the teams that helped build limbs were just the first people to start to use the nervous system in, in uh, sort of in anger, so to speak, as a, as a thing we can use. But the, the and, and really that's how we managed to get our early momentum and be ahead of the field. The big things that the, um, particularly the biopharma execs see is this, you know, these sort of bioelectronic approaches where, um, where we think, okay, our brainstem for hundreds of millions of years uh, even before we existed as humans, was the, was coordinating lots of organ systems. And, you know, the, can we ask the question, what if we could uh, directly change the signals that set up our organs day to day? And those are the level and the scale at which um, industry and particularly major science labs have been discovering new treatments. Um, and um, so the future that we see for BIOS that, we've, that has been able to help us build the company is we just believe in this future where for everyone, their nervous system you know, is effectively this new control panel they have on their own, their own health. So starting with those people that we can help today that we really have a, a massive affinity for and, and, and you know, we, we were given a motivation to solve a problem, partly because we have the capability to solve a problem we saw someone else did have. But then so that scale of, of what can be done means that we have this roadmap to the future where even actually at the moment, we power a lot of discovery, we have the largest data sets around studying different organ systems that could use the nervous system. And so I think from, um, you know, from an investor and industry perspective, I think, you know, to, to take some of the credit for what you said, and yes, we, I think we were, we were, we were right, lucky to be right around neural having this really broad future. Um, and, um, but then at the same time, I think uh, it, it's, it's also been about having um, really great supporters who've brought their expertise to us as well, like clinicians and, 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 and scientific specialists as well to help us pick a roadmap for a cool technology. So it's been quite great. Yeah, that's really cool. So I, I want to talk about what you're building then in a, in quite a practical way, because obviously I've done, I've done a bit of reading and I've caught up on where you guys are at. And one of the things that I read, you know, described it as a, a, a neural data biomarker discovery platform, a lot of buzzwords there, but essentially what I gleaned from it is that computers are essentially reading and probably writing neural data i.e how the brain is working when it's doing stuff so computers are reading that they're understanding that these signals means it's doing this these other signals mean it's doing that and so it's essentially learning the language of nerves for the brain um to essentially deliver different treatments i assume because then the, the obviously the brain is if you understand the language that the brain is talking into the rest of the body yeah. you can essentially then hack that right so you can then with i assume ai machine learning to really kind of get into the nitty-gritty and understand all the different elements you can really start to understand what signals you can then provide to yeah. then mimic the same sorts of things so just sort of extrapolating that then <laughs> is there a future whereby you can hack the brain's process so that you no longer need to give medications you can literally just alter the signals yes yeah, so there's definitely a future where and that's the future we're working towards where the next and in fact the, ideally the most effective treatments you have for cardiac disease for diabetes for arthritis for all the major chronic conditions where you have pat neural pathways that govern the performance of all the organ systems that do it. You write the treatment in software and you deliver it as a set of neural signals instead of using uh, pills and um, the sort of small molecule drugs that flow all around our body and build up in side effects. So 
that is the direct consequence of, of building you know, a healthcare first neural interface is we will build the capability to use our nervous system and then to create signals in the nervous system that keep us healthy, you know, microsecond by microsecond and adapt with us as we age and adapt with us as we try to do new things. And um, in the end, you know, the hardware part of this is actually just an enabler. It's a very hard problem, but it's gonna, it's more like um, once you get to that level of connection in the body, then you can treat many different uh, conditions at, at once. And, and, and really what we're doing is trying to just give people more control um, over their quality of life. So, so algorithmic treatments have that, you know, you, your, your health sort of scales at the speed of software rather than the speed of very, very slow um, um, sort of, you know, new molecule discovery, as long as you get one thing right, which is the AI position, which is to discover and really interpret neural signals in the way that the body is using it, because we're, we're trying to tap into an existing pathway and our, the role of sort of the machine learning and AI processes is just to give us that, that high fidelity translation back and forth that is reliable, that's safe, and that we can really show what is happening every time we use the system to, to, to do the treatment. Yeah. My next question then is how far away from that are we, are you? And are there other people trying to do something similar? Is, this a, is there a race going on for this? Where do you guys see yourselves in that space? I'm just trying to get an idea for whereabouts we are as human beings to actually, you know, alleviating the need for medications potentially and being able to hack that process. Yeah. So, so the short answer is we're right in the middle of a massive uh, transition where neural treatments are going to become a major part of the healthcare offering that, that, that can replace um, conventional or existing treatments. Um, so 15 years ago, the science was really solved as to whether these things work. Uh, really that happened by studying the pathways for the, the major most effective drugs and really seeing that at the end the molecule from the existing drug is just changing neural signaling and that was sort of the very foundational work scientifically we've discovered a whole range already of of pathways so there's 25 plus chronic conditions so chronic conditions you know that's the 86 percent of all the healthcare spending 25 sort of indications within that each of each of them costing in the sort of high billions per year um have a known uh, neural pathway that you could target. So the transition that uh, is, you know, is this believable, is this usable? That's already, uh, we've already passed that as an entire industry and an entire field. So, so, so what, what is now important is, this, is, is how do we get from one-off scientific results into something that is safe, affordable, and scalable across an entire population? And um, the big, big challenge is that everyone who tries to translate even just one treatment, and there have been companies that figured out how to translate one treatment from a lab result all the way through into a single product, which sort of validates that this that's possible. Um, that there's just no data about how the nervous system is interacting with um, with our organs, and and so how can we build a reliable algorithmic treatment if we don't have enough data to even train basic train and validate basic um, input and output? And that's the sort of BIOS's role is that we started four years ago sort of trying to get ahead of this curve and saying, well, why don't we build an interface that everyone can then just translate this on top of? So everyone else's headache, it take, you know, everyone else takes you know, four to five years in the tens of millions of dollars to achieve what we now do in about three months, on, even on a just discovery side for, you know, for a fraction of that cost. The headache for everyone is that's a big bottleneck in just seeing if a treatment works. So we will instead build the system the other way around, sort of the engineering machine learning way around, which is that we will, we will make a super high fidelity interface and then learn the, learn the characteristics we can put through it. 
Um, so there are already small numbers of patients who are benefiting from treatments with the nervous system. And, and, when, and when they have those products, it's transformative so that people have been given treatments for Crohn's disease that effectively turn off all the major symptoms by just sending signals through their nervous system, similar for uh, various forms of arthritis and, 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 and actually through major, lots of the major systems. So we're already in small places around the, around the world having people who are having treatment via nerves instead of drugs. And then the next big transition, which is the one we're trying to underpin, is how this goes from a capability in the tens of people and the hundreds of people up to the hundreds of thousands and to the millions. Yeah. And um, that's going to be underpinned by really reliable technology that could be fitted. Um, people first, you know, the first transition over the next five years will be for those with very critical end of life uh, type issues, particularly on big, big major systems like the cardiac system. We would like and we're working towards there being an alternative to, to you know, just waiting on a transplant plant list um, or just waiting for an incredibly expensive um, sort of semi-palliative procedure like a ventricular assist device. Again, how, you know, is there, is there, is there um, for those who are at that level of, of risk, is there something that we can do with their nervous system that at least fits them out to have a better quality of life? Then the next transition after that is, is, is um, you know, multiple treatments going to people who choose to do so around the time that they're, they're really, you know, their age is catching up with them. Um, just like when people take a pacemaker, that level of sort of risk reward choice uh, and conversation with their clinician. The potential's huge, isn't it? It really yeah. is. So let's talk the business side then. So in December, you guys raised $4.5 million. You've got now an office in Montreal, an R&D office. Yep. The money that you've raised and the kind of the, the timeline of your company at the moment, it, it strikes me, I guess, that you're going to be, you're, I mean, you're an R&D in the R&D phase, aren't you? And I suppose you're going to be for some time. Is that what this money's going down for? Is Have you got any kind of specific goals for this money? Yeah, so actually, um, so, you know, we're, we're unusual because we were one of, we were almost, depending on arguments, the first neural interface company to start. There's a couple around, most of them are in the US. And um, we, we before we raised that money, we had already built the data, biggest data sort of pipeline in, um, uh, in existence for studying our preclinical pathways for, for, for neural, um, neural treatments of organs. So the, the money, the milestones for that round really about us maturing that into building and finding assets um, in the nervous system. So some of the results we released at a conference in Australia a couple of weeks ago were sort of start to show that 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 starting to bear fruit. So first of all, saying, let's start to have really nicely validated with an ability to translate um, underlying um, ingredients to build these really powerful treatments. But also what this funding does is kicks us into the clinical transition phase. So the this is the funding that allows us to then fit the first people with uh, the same architecture implant system as could deliver these treatments. And, you know, we've, we have a, a first population, which is actually upper limb amputees who uh, require pain control and sensation, sensor, sensory feedback plus output that can benefit from the same hardware and rudimentary elements of the same processing system. And so what we are doing is transitioning into having a clinical capability plus we've turned on the data pipeline that allows us to build these more longer term assets. And the next phase for us is to then invest in having huge capability on the, on the data analysis and machine learning side, which is why we started the Montreal office to, to start to find the types of assets that could underpin these, you know, you know um, hundreds of thousands of people plus 
uh, scale treatments and to keep building and, and, and pushing our clinical transition such that we can then have these demonstrated uh, within the next few years in, in clinical populations. So business-wise then, when do you start revenue generating? How do you start revenue generating? What do you perceive the business models are going to be? Thanks, good question. So the, the, long-term, the long-term business model for companies in, 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 in this, uh, the neural interface for sort of health space is really about maintaining the fidelity and quality and stability of the, um, the actual connection. So a lot of the hardware even though that's um, you know each of us builds our own recipe and we have we have the, the base of the first and highest bandwidth system out there, then our value chain position is that it takes continuous effort with machine learning powered software to keep that thing reliable, running, and, and delivering the treatments it, it, it has. So at, at its core, um, our assets and the things we monetize are the software stack and the algorithms that deliver the treatment every microsecond in the products that are inside the patients. Our roadmap as a company is to build um, you know, full, full stack. So uh, clinical procedure, we've got an entire um, outcome measure, remote monitoring framework around it that, that shows performance um, through uh, hardware and software, uh, single indication system. Um, so we'll, we'll pick it, we're, we're working on, uh, and we'll, we'll announce actually sort of later down the road, the exact indication we're going for, but we're, we're building a system that can solve a very, a very, very critical large indication um, for a lot of people, deliver that just like um, the cutting edge medical devices that are coming out now, but then open up that, that entire software environment so that lots and lots of treatments can be built through it. So our roadmap is to get to that end state where we're running sort of the, the applications um, that, that people are discovering in all the science labs and all the research groups around the world. And our position is that okay, we've provided the product and delivers it, but it's the algorithms that we're using to underpin that are how we have an ongoing value proposition. It's an ongoing revenue stream, an ongoing position in sort of providing health for people. Yeah, it actually seems relatively simple, doesn't it? It's, it I was expecting <laughs> there to be lots of, lots of complicated elements to it. I mean, yeah, and it's... And it's nature that what you're doing as a whole is, yeah, extremely complex. But actually, the business model kind of takes care of itself. Yeah, I think if you can, if you can, you know, we, we, we're building an awesome, we have an awesome team already. I really, I really enjoy coming into the office these days because of the talent we're bringing in. But the teams that are capable of delivering this super cross-functional, you know, from, from first of, we've done 20 first-of-kind devices between our engineering team. We've also unlocked some amazing advances in machine learning and, and, and invented lots of things in between. This team is one of the few groups in the world that can get us there. So really, the, the, this, this phase of neural interface um, uh, sort of industry transition is that the teams that can build the platform that is end-to-end, that can manage payer, um, payer concerns, the patient concerns, the risk, and also have working assets that really deliver health. Um, you know, the problem is pretty much stated right there. Like, can you make it work? Can, you know, is it safe? Can you deliver it? Um, we've got a lot of scientific assets that need to be translated. That's the, where the first phase of this, of this industry is going to be. Um, defined in one. In the long run, you know, I think that we, we really believe in this very, you know, um, open development ecosystem type future, the app store of health that really can do a lot more than just interacting with us through our phone is going to come through neural interfaces. And that will be the second phase for our company and many others. And we, we already sort of put lots of standards out there. So we've helped start an IEEE standard and put a lot of coding tools out and data sets out 
but the core of the business plan is just get this to help the first people as fast as we possibly can. Mm. And I, I genuinely do think the rest will take care of itself after that. The space in general, I mean, you mentioned the ecosystem there. What are the players are around in terms of startups that, that are sort of making up this ecosystem? And how do you think that's going to change moving forwards? Um, so at the moment, you've got sort of three major constituents. Uh, so we have groups translating from science labs, very uh, scientific labs, a single powerful result, and then trying to build a conventional, more like a medical device company on top. Uh, they, uh, when they succeed, really have battled through maybe 10 to 15 years of, of, of translation. And by, by virtue of the compromises they need to make, will have had to optimize their product just to work effectively, but also affordably for one, one condition. Um, then you've got a couple of major farmers, the, the guys who really set the tone for this, were a joint venture between Verily, which is Google's healthcare group, and GSK, who, are, who just have decided now there's a roadmap where they will make neural treatments as alternatives to drugs available within the next few years. They're really leading the way in terms of trying to lobby for better reimbursement, come up with um, some of the regulatory framework. We work with them a lot on some advisory panels and groups. Um, and then there's a small set of companies like ourselves, which we consider to be neural interface companies. So we are trying to build the connection capability and make that safe and affordable, addressable, usable by, by a wide group of people. Um, we're the only group that really focuses on doing this directly for healthcare purpose. So the others that you might know of really think about connecting directly to the brain for this, for, for uploading and, you know, or, or, you know, playing, playing video games or, or providing kind of computer control functions. And so, the core hard technologies that the other two groups need to consume can only really be solved by neural, you know, the hard engineering neural interface companies like ourselves. And we've always had a mission that we want our technology to be usable first. The stacks actually all end up looking the same, but ours will be first used for, for good purposes for ideally, you know, 10,000 people's relatives rather than one, you know, video game playing billionaire. It's kind of the concept. Um, but um, the, the next transition, which is what we're actively trying to see, is there's going to be these, these two other new constituents in, 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 the, in the industry. So clinicians who've been given the tools um, to, to use neural technology, neural omics, just like they might use diagnostics from you know, using um, you know, DNA or similar to solve or understand, uh, so diagnose, uh, to triage, or even to deliver new, um, new treatments for their patient population. And likewise, you know, patient groups who access neural technology um, more, um, more of the non-invasive type neural technologies are the ones that have been built for games and bringing those into some, some treatment paradigms that they like. And then the other constituents that are the developers. So we are trying to make this scale at the speed of software and so are all of the non-invasive neural groups. So effectively, a neural interface will become just like a you know, computer mouse or a screen and you'll be able to write software for it. And what we hope and what we're trying to help seed is that the developers choose to build healthcare applications first. I think it's a great vision. And I think it's also a great ethos that you've got to remain patient focused and remain patient centered in a way that even the way your business model set up to be scalable to all the different people that need it, you know, the language that you speak in is one that is definitely sustainable in the health tech environment because you know referencing you know the the one billionaire video gamer that enjoys his virtual world and, and stuff you know it's it's nice that you want to avoid that black mirror future and you're very focused on on leveraging this technology to help so many people i think that's just a, a really nice way to to progress in the space 
I've thoroughly enjoyed this podcast. I've learned a lot about how to view the future in terms of a, a pillless, drugless future where we're just hacking the brain's ability to actually um, deliver Help the truth needed. Yeah. yeah, it's incredible. And look, so the way that we end these podcasts is I just hand back over to you to kind of summarize a little bit about yourself, a little bit about BIOS. If you've got any asks of our audience, then feel free to close us out with those. Perfect. So yeah, so um, my name's Emil. I, I started a company called BIOS, uh, which is a full stack neural interface company that's trying to build the future of chronic health care treatment. We, as a company, are developing open standard hardware and software connections between our nervous system um, and computers that could be used to treat us. Our, our ask is really to find people who have an interest in, in, in solving or are already ch challenged by major chronic conditions and want to explore um, disease re research partnerships around major chronic diseases, those who want to come work for our company and try and help build, the, build that future for tomorrow, or those who'd like to advise or help us as we try and commercialize the technology. Um, you know, our background really as a company is, 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 is super broad. We, um, I've started in Cambridge as a starry-eyed, um, not even degree qualified student and managed to get to be part of this company. And we have people who've closed down entire genomics research groups to join us to, to push neural tech. So, so our backgrounds, including my own, I think speak to the fact that this is a massive paradigm shift type company and really looking for people who want to help solve, you know, how we make it, how we use it and how we commercialize it. And just for our listeners, I've known these guys for um, a few years now, actually, since my previous accelerator. So I fully endorse this message is what I will say there. How can people get in touch with you if they want to get in touch? Best way is to go to our website, which is bios.health or contact us on uh, info at bios.health and we'll, we'll be happy to reach out.